when you're guiding and you're hunting, say, an area that maybe you're familiar with the area, but you sure enough haven't guided it before that specific location, mm-hmm. what are some things that you're doing? Well, on the front end, I'm talking to people and trying to get as much information as I can. And then I'm looking at maps like crazy. Try to talk to old timers because uh, I'm a firm believer that where once stood an elk will stand an elk again. Terrain and and how wind moves through that terrain really dictates animal movement. And you know it, it's it's a holistic thing, but certain vegetations grow on certain aspects. And I think that that terrain is king, and it really doesn't change. It can change with wildfire a little bit and stuff like that. But I think where once stood an elk will stand an elk again. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. What goes into an elk hunt? Like before it ever gets started, like a rifle elk hunt. Because we spend a lot of time talking about archery elk hunting, but rifle elk hunting is honestly probably more participated in. I think that's fair. I feel like there's more valuable work that you can do before you get to a rifle elk hunt than before you get to an archery elk hunt, as far as the actual like scouting of the animals and terrain and stuff. Yeah, I think the nature of the behavior of the animals that time of year lends itself to needing to scout more, feel like they're less visible. Maybe depending on the terrain, bulls are starting to break off from the groups, so they're a little more isolated. So there's definitely that scouting aspect. I feel like I spend more time going through my gear just because the weather's turning cold and yeah, like your like your physical gear. I like my physical gear. I just feel like it, maybe it doesn't, but I feel like it takes more gear and more planning. Yeah. Uh, in terms of physical gear than, a, than an archery hunt. Archery hunts can be all of the weather, but most of the time it's not. It's like yeah. it's pretty nice out during the day. Yeah. Might have a cold morning, cold evening. Uh, Kyle Nine, I got absolutely crushed in one of those little like one-man shelter tent things that you set up with trekking poles in that big storm that hit 
the continental divide between Idaho and Montana a few years ago. And mm. all all the hunters were unprepared for it. It just that storm just showed up and dumped a huge amount of snow. The tent collapsed on us in the middle of the night and I was sleeping on my back and I felt all this weight and wet and cold. And I was like, well, that's it. I just died in my sleep. This is what death feels like. <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar experience one time, but that was on a deer hunt. An early, early snow hit us in the high country. Well, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, and I think as archers, especially in the mountains, we've all been hit by that early storm. And, and then you wish that you had the gear that, you know, it, it, I feel like you're taking less. So it needs to be a little bit more planned out in terms of the quality and what specific items you take. Uh, rifle hunts, I just always feel like I have more stuff that hunt we did in colorado a few years ago which i've talked about a bunch of times before it's a little bit traumatic um probably why i keep talking about it but my pack was as full as i could get it just with the gear i needed to survive yeah no i'm that's that's really problematic on a backpack hunt when it's cold totally and then you're trying to kill an elk so then what happens yeah and they're heavy (laughs) (laughs) take up space Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) Yeah, no, no it, it's just a little different outfit and, uh, you know, for all those reasons, for weather, for elk behavior, for the type of commitment that you need to put in at the range ahead of time. Um, not that you don't do all those things with archery, it's just a, it's just a different, different game. And we're out here at the rifle range right now. As a guide, I always want to have a rifle that's ready to go for a client. I can't necessarily do that with a bow. I try, but bows are so species specific you know i if if your bow went down you'd struggle shooting mine because you're four inches taller than me definitely species and yeah individual yeah specific yeah yeah that's kind of what i mean i was playing around with that word yeah yeah okay a little slow on the uptake there but uh but a rifle i can have a rifle ready to go especially a nice modular rifle like the cross it's got all the adjustability in the world I can have that thing sighted in, and then if something happens to a client's gun, I can go, here you go. This one's ready. Yeah. And we're not out here zeroing this gun. I'm confirming that the gun is still zeroed. <laughs> so I've been hunting with, with this particular rifle for a month and a half now, and it likes to shoot stuff in the heart. So hopefully that streak continues. Yeah. I mean, as the guide, I hope it does as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so rifle elk hunting man that's a it's a different beast and and it's not talked about a lot but tis the season we're rolling right into the second rifle season in oregon which uh is a little bit deceiving there's breaking down any state's regulations is kind of a da vinci code thing but it's oregon's second rifle bull elk season but for a lot of these units it's the first branch bull season it's complicated Anyways, we're hunting branch bulls. It's still a controlled hunt, still a draw tag. And uh, yeah, Hunter shows up tomorrow. I'm excited. Gonna have some good food. Yep. Weather doesn't look too snarly. A little wet, but yep. shouldn't be too cold. Cold as relative cold gets, I suppose. Seen worse in uh, second rifle season. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. The piece of property is a little bit interesting because uh, there's not a lot of cover there's not like big timbered norths or big patches of timber in fact it's about as open 
as an elk hunt gets. Yeah. Which which presents a few unique challenges, but that's kind of uh, in the evolution of the elk. That's kind of where they came from, right? I mean, they were a prairie animals supposedly, and spent a good amount of their time. That's the rumor on those big open expanses of grassland and bunch grass prairies, and so that's kind of where where we're hunting them here is country that looks more like that. One issue I have with that with that elk or prairie animal first is it it was a lot easier to explore prairie and see animals on the prairie than it was to see them in the mountains and they're so adaptable totally like we have elk that live in yellow star thistle hills in northern california and sure enough jungle in uh, western oregon and washington and all of the alpine you know we're hunting those elk in colorado at like thirteen thousand feet yep yep and well, then and now you've got in, elk in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Yeah, and, they're really adaptable. Yeah. So I don't, I don't feel like that adaptability is a new thing. I think that there's probably elk in the mountains too. But there's definitely more of them on the prairie before we turn the prairie into a, you know, cornfield. Yeah. And they kind of dig the cornfields too. I was talking with uh, <laughs> Jordan <laughs> Budd earlier. That bull, did you see that bull that uh, her and her client killed? I did not. It's a big bull. It's a 365 inch bull that oh. they killed coming out of a cornfield in Nebraska. Tremendous bull. Yikes. Yeah. Huh. Good for her. That's what I said. Yeah. That's awesome. Can so. you imagine seeing the, the corn stalks shaking as that thing's trying to walk up a row of corn? Yeah. I can't imagine that. It sounds amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like raking corn. <laughs> and they're just knocking the knocking the corn cobs off of the. I can't really imagine it. That's I think it would be fun. No kidding. Getting busted by pheasants all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> huh. So we got a nice little herd of buffalo out on the hillside. That's kind of fun to look at. Yeah. It kind of wigs me out that there's bison right next to this rifle range, and there's a bison target on the left side of the rifle range that looks an awful lot like the bison that are on the right side, but. People are pretty responsible out here. Yeah. I haven't heard about there being any issues. No. Nope. It's a glassing. Rifle hunting glassing? Yeah. It's about the most important thing that you can do, in my opinion. How do you do it right? Uh, whatever technique works for you to see the most game. You know, I think there's definitely some strategies, and it depends a lot on, you know, the, the areas that you're hunting. Some are just more conducive to glassing, and, and some are not. A lot of the area that that you and I have grown up in over here, whether it's the canyons or the mountains, is pretty conducive to glassing. And a lot of times, this late in the year, those older bulls are pulled off by themselves in little sneaky little timbered norths, and they might come out five minutes a day. And so at that point... Of daylight. Yeah, or or maybe even five minutes a day. Yeah. If they've got food in the timber and some water in sure, there and sure. they, you know, they have all the things that that bull needs to, to hide out. And so a, you have to be in the right position with the right glass when that five minutes happens or B, you really have to pay attention to your angles. What do you mean by angles? Like the different, the different aspects by which you can look into an area where a bull might be living. So for you, does that mean that you'll look into this timbered north where you suspect there's a bull for, you know, X amount of time and then move half a mile or a mile? Depends on how confident I am 
with the area that I'm looking into. Say, say there's one particular north and I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I don't know that there's a bull in there, but I feel like there should be. I might only move 50 yards. I might only move down the ridge 100 yards and set up again and glass across. Usually the way I like to do is what most people do is, you know, you, you either are across from what you're looking at, whether it's the next ridge over or across the canyon or across the draw or whatever, and then you're looking back into the north, picking it apart. And, I mean, it could be the difference of, you know, the four-foot difference between where you and I are sitting right now to see a bull that's in a north like that. And I feel like everybody who's glassed with a buddy at some point has had that experience where you're four feet apart and we're both in our binoculars or spotters or whatever. And I go, there he is. And because I'm trained, I keep my binoculars on him and I don't just drop him and lose him and have to find him again. So I'm still looking and I say, there he is. And you say, there's what? I say, well, there's that bull. I found the bull. And then I explain to you where he is and you say, I can't see him. And I say, come over here and you move four feet and now you can see him. That those subtle angle changes are massively important, massively important. Yeah. It, and the truth is that, you know, in big country, especially like this, you can't hit them all, right? There's just no way that you can hit all the different angles, especially if we're talking differences of four feet. And not simultaneously either. No, and not simultaneously. So, you know, you have to strategically kind of pick and choose, you know, how, how those angles are going to work for you. But, but the fact remains is that truthfully, it, it literally can be a four feet difference between seeing a bull and not seeing a bull. Yeah. That's just what it is. Yeah. So you, you know, you learn over time how to look, how to grid, how to pick up partial images of an animal versus looking for their entire body. And shoot, I mean, a lot of times we miss them, right? That's just what it is. Sure. So you try to see more than you miss. Yep. You hear guys, especially Northwoods guys, talk about looking for things like uh, like a, like their back, like an animal's back, because almost everything in, in their country is straight up and down. It's a tree, more or less. Um, so they're looking for that breakup in, in texture, in lines and shapes. I'm really dependent on color and movement. Movement's king. But yeah. if they're just sitting still, um, I'm really analyzing everything out there that is vaguely elk colored. And it's an elk until I've determined that it's not an elk. One of the first things I do is glass all of the obvious gremlins that are out there that in bear hunting is probably the worst like anything can look like a yeah black bear that could be so many different colors yep. and shapes yep um so i just get all the gremlins taken care of everything that might be a bear might be an elk whatever i'm hunting and then i start looking for places that i think that i could see one if he moved yeah yeah and i i think it's even worth you know, maybe you go through a, a timbered patch or timbered north looking for elk color and you go through and you distinguish and determine that none of those colors that matched matched up to an elk. Okay, we're going to grid through it again and this time we're looking for, you know, maybe it's a shape or maybe it's a horizontal line versus a vertical line. Because, you know, for whatever reason from day to day, 
especially if it's early in the hunt and you haven't glassed up a lot of elk in that area, a lot of times that color can be deceiving. Maybe it looks different against the yellow grass. Maybe their body looks different against yellow grass. Maybe, you know, they might just not stand out like a thumb, sore thumb. So I think that you're right. You need to start probably with color because that's going to be your first indicator. But if it's not, grid through and don't look for color. Look for some other indicator. What are the other indicators? Well, like you say, I mean, you Tra know. Tracks? Sure. If you're hunting somewhere with snow or if you're hunting somewhere where you know, it's steep and it's been wet. A herd elk can leave a pretty good swath if they're coming off the hill. We glass tracks a lot when I was a kid because you could see, mm -hmm. you could see where three or four bulls had crossed an opening across a you know snowy slope from eight miles away. Oh yeah, yeah. The snow is awesome for that. But if it's wet enough and you know steep enough, those bulls will slide coming down through the grass even a little bit. So you can pick them up that way sometimes, not as often as snow. A friend of mine that works in wildlife control uh, for wolves will track wolves from a helicopter or a super cub mm -hmm. in the snow. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a guy in Canada who's very, very good at it that has come down and taught some of these guys in the States. And uh, what my buddy told me is that if it's not sunny, or like sure enough sunny, that it's it's not doable to see from aircraft. And I found that from the ground too. You wouldn't really suspect that, that sun on snow is that critical, but if, if it's cloudy, those shadows are really all that you're seeing from a distance in a snowy track. From the air, are those guys able to distinguish a wolf versus some other type of track because of the gate? I don't know. Maybe just where it's going and how it's going. Sure. Be interesting to learn from those guys. It gets to be like that though, with lions or bobcats or coyotes. Like you can you can tell by by stride length or yep. or just kind of how they're moving around from tendencies of where they travel and where they don't. Sure. You can do it mm -hmm. going sixty miles an hour down the road. It's not yeah. not that hard if if you're used to looking at it. Yep. When you're guiding and you're hunting, say an area that Maybe you're familiar with the area, but you sure enough haven't guided it before that specific location. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you're doing? Oof. Well, on the front end, I'm talking to people and trying to get as much information as I can. And then I'm looking at maps like crazy. Try to talk to old timers because uh, I'm a firm believer that where once stood an elk will stand an elk again. Terrain and and how wind moves through that terrain really dictates animal movement. And, you know, it, it's, it's a holistic thing, but certain vegetations grow on certain aspects. And I think that the terrain is king and it really doesn't change. It can change with wildfire a little bit and stuff like that. But I think where once stood an elk will stand an elk again. And then, uh, then when I get there, I just, I just try to rely on my experience with the species. Uh, we did a hunt a few years ago and I went to a state, an entire state that I'd never hunted before. And I certainly had not been in this mountain range or this region. And I put down five different points on a map where I thought we were going to find elk. And we ended up um, actually killing elk within 400 yards of two of those points. Hmm. And it wasn't just that those were the areas that we went and hunted because we hunted huge amounts of area. But 
just based on a little bit of prerequisite knowledge and some criteria, it's like, okay, I think that this has what it needs. And it wasn't crazy or anything. So I was like, I think what I went off of was proximity to trails and roads, proximity to water, the steepness of the hillside, the uh, amount of timber that was there, and I picked northeast aspects. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a middle of November hunt, and it worked out. So that's yeah. what I do. What yeah, do you do? no, no, I think. It, it's a weird thing. It is a weird thing. Um, to guide in a new place. I think that, you know, like you say, that, that knowledge of where one stood an elk will stand an elk again however you said it, especially if you're dealing with late season bulls that have broken off from the groups. You know, if you're hunting herds of elk, I think you can look at those places on a map and be like, these are all the things an elk needs. There's a high likelihood I can find an elk here. And, you know, whatever, maybe there's more cows, young bulls, maybe the old bulls like it there. I think when you're starting to look for bulls that have broken off from the groups, it maybe is a little bit more difficult to nail down, but also you're throwing out a lot of country, I feel like. Yeah. Because you're just looking like, I think the distance from roads is a biggie. I think that terrain aspect is really big. I suppose, at least in this country, try to find, you know, those nasty, steep little norths where they're not getting bothered. And then, I, you know, I think that those bulls are just like an old mule deer buck and they've been taught that's a good place, you know, by the bulls that came before them. And, and, uh, a lot of the places where I've hunted and, and guided, I've actually been able to track like these same individual bull going back to the same North for multiple years in a row. You know, they just have those, those kind of homing tendencies. And if it worked for him the year before, he's going to assume that it's going to work for him again. And they're not always in the same draw, but a lot of times they'll be very, very close to where they were before. I found that too. I yeah. Told, I told you about those sheds that me and Jim O'Leary found. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. I've found something similar as well. So we were out in some steep country and I found a left and a left from the same bowl from two different years within a few feet of each other. And then miles away, which really significant miles given that country, uh, Jim found the right and the right from the same bowl from two different years. That's incredible. And just tells you how he's using that terrain. Yeah, he is an elk machine. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I think you hit a lot of super important points. What do people do wrong? Hmm. In looking for late season elk or bulls or? Yeah, no, November season elk, November month elk. I think that if you're going on a hunt that maybe is in a better unit, maybe took you longer to draw, you're going to, go after that hunt with a little bit different expectation and you're probably going to hunt that unit a little bit different. I think that we should talk about the hunts that maybe, you know, say take one to four years to draw. Okay. Because the majority of the rifle hunts that we grew up hunting mm -hmm. uh, in Oregon probably fit into that category. Yep. I think that, that it's easy to get caught up in trying to outsmart other people. And what I mean by that is if you have a unit that maybe has 300 tags or 500 tags or something, uh, it's easy to get caught up 
and worrying about what everybody else is going to do. Well, if these guys are going here and maybe these guys are going to go here, we're going to race these guys here. There is some aspect of that that you have to think about on public land, but people are the most unpredictable of all. So you've got all these factors in hunting that are difficult and people trying to figure out what people are going to do is maybe, I, I just feel like it's a, it's a time waste. Like have some idea, but don't let that dictate how you feel the best way to hunt that area is. Mm-hmm. Don't fall in love with your plan. Don't fall in love with your plan. Don't drink a bunch of beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless that's your thing. Yeah. Right. If, if you're just going out there to hang out with the boys or the girls and you just want to hang out, you know, in camp and, and drink beer, that's great. But th- it's not going to help you get an elk. So maybe dial back on the light beer. I, I think that um, bush light saves a lot of elk. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Especially everybody first gets to camp, they're excited. Have a few drinks the night before. Maybe you get out of bed a little bit late opening morning. But then come day three, four, or five, if you're starting to lose your, your gumption, uh, I think that's when it starts to save a lot of elk too. Yeah. Well, you don't sleep as well. It it doesn't help in, in any way. Yeah. And I'm not trying to take away from the guys that want to go to elk camp and drink beer. No. Good on you. But if your goal is to go out there and, and get yourself an elk that you can bring home, beer's not going to help you. Yeah. I think going into to day one, morning one, if you've done your job scouting like we talked about, you know, on public land hunts, morning one on an elk that you have scouted is where it's your time to shine to execute your plan. Because after morning one, the deck completely reshuffles on public land most of the time. Yeah, it's chaos theory. It's chaos theory. It's nice to be able to identify some escape routes and safety zones, Mm -hmm. places that you think an elk might go hide. And those have to be places that people don't go looking for elk. If it's obvious that that's where an elk's going to go, then there's going to be somebody there and then that elk gets shot and then... You know, it, it doesn't turn into that type of north that you're talking about where elk come back to year after year after year. I think, you know, if, if you're in a high pressure area, hunting passes on opening morning and starting making your plan A be your plan B and catching elk that are getting shoved around by other people is a really legit option. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You got to be on your game. You can't be like playing cribbage on your phone or taking pictures of the sunrise or stuff like that because you're not going to have a lot of time. Yeah, no, I agree. And that comes with, I, you know, I think no matter where you're hunting or, or you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, uh, talking to old timers or whatever, but you, you just can't beat knowledge in a unit. And if you're learning that unit, maybe you grew up hunting it or whatever, you know where those passes are or those escape routes are. And, you know, you're still going to play the odds on, on those, but, uh, gosh, it's such a leg up. So if you, if you're going somewhere new, there's a chance you're going to be behind the eight ball a little bit. I mean, use your, use your knowledge and use your, your gut. But sometimes the only way to learn that is just to get in there and, and you might get socked around for a couple of days until you start to learn how the elk are using that area. And, and then, and then it just becomes a matter of your will, you know, how long you're willing to stick it out and learn what those elk do after after the deck reshuffles. 
Okay, say you're going to do an out-of-state hunt in a new area, and there's a little town there. Mm -hmm. What business, what one business are you going to go into? Oh, you're going to go to the bar. With the hopes (laughs) of finding a crusty old guy, you know, who's killed more elks than the Remington Corlocked. I'll tell you this. I, I was joking there. If you go to the bar, you're going to get a lot of stories that may or may not help you. What you do is you get up and you hit the only diner in town the second that it opens in the morning. And there's going to be a table of guys there who were not out at the bar all night. Mm-hmm. They're going to be having their coffee because that's what they do at that diner at six in the morning. It's not going to be loud. They're not going to be cranky because they just got up and they like coffee. Well, they got up three hours ago. They got up three hours ago, <laughs> but they finally got to go see their friends. Yeah, right. Um, man, those are the guys that... And you can't walk in and say, hey, fellas, where are the elk? But just be a good human, and usually they're pretty happy to talk to you. Yeah. Mind, but, mind if I sit here? Yeah. Buy them the coffee. Definitely buy the coffee. That's money well spent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the very least, you're going to hear some good stories. Absolutely. Might not help on your elk hunt, but it might. It sure might. They've been doing it a long time. Probably going to help the story. Yep. Uh, Did you want to talk a little bit specifically about the hunt that we're about to do? Nah. Okay. (laughs) 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 All right. (laughs) I mean, we're going to make a video. Sure. Yeah. So when that comes out, people can watch it. I'll give you all a heads up when it does. But, uh... It's an interesting video. I can tell you that right now. It's not like it's not like any hunting video I've ever been a part of. Mostly because it's not really about hunting. Yeah. I second that. Which I think makes for... I Personally, I think makes for a good hunting film. <laughs> 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 I mean, you can sit on YouTube all day and watch people sh- shoot things. Which, uh-huh. is, which has its place. Sure. Um, yeah. But... Hoping this one goes a little deeper. We'll see uh, See what Dale has to say about it. Yeah. Yep. That'll be the real, that's a real test of anything, honestly. Yeah, how many grunts he gives after he sees it. Uh-huh. Determines if he liked it or not. I didn't much care for, I don't know what, what comes out of <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could pick <laughs> pretty much anything. <laughs> this is Chad's dad that we're picking on, who's a super nice guy, an incredibly accomplished hunter, and a wonderful taxidermist. But he tends to be a little grumpy and opinionated on things like that. Yeah. I do too, honestly. Try to keep it dialed back, or at least checked up until I've got more gray hair and feel like I've earned my grumpiness. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, should we uh, pack up and go, like, I don't know, do a little scouting? I suppose. I suppose scouting would be good. See um, if we can find a place where now stands an elk. Yeah. And then hopefully in a couple of days, now stands an elk again. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm laughing at because I have zero expectation of that. But um, it is good to go out there and, and kind of lay eyes on stuff. Get the feel of it. Well, you're just adding to that knowledge base. And, you know, I guess we're, I'm going backwards with this comment, but I feel like if we're going somewhere new, half the battle is knowing how to get to where you pointed on the map. Yeah. Roads and trails and 
all that stuff, man, there's nothing more frustrating than waking up the morning of the hunt and driving around in the dark because you can't figure out where the heck you're going. So I haven't gotten one in my hot little hands yet, but the new SIG rangefinding binoculars, mm-hmm. um, when you range something, which can be out to 10,000 yards, um, it'll automatically put a waypoint on your base map app. No kidding. So if you are in a new area, and th- it's not for like, oh, I'm going to shoot 10,000 yards. That's not what it's about. Um, but if you are in a new area and you glass something up in a basin and you're like, oh, man, there he is. Click. Now it shows up on your map and you know exactly where that animal is and you can start making a plan for how to get there. And then for, you know, how far the shot is going to be to that pass that you can get to or that point that you can sneak out on. And that's that's tank technology. You know, I'm trying to turn everything back into a tank, but yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's awesome. What about... You know, you're getting up there and you're looking for first blood. And you're like, well, where the heck was I when I shot? Yeah. I mean, that's super important to be able to, Huge. to tell where you were at the shot versus where the animal was at the shot. And where was he? Right. You know, now you know. Yeah. Like, I ranged him. There he is. Yeah. He, he, was, he was right here. He was standing right here. Yeah. Here's my, here's my pen. We made a big move on a bull that was across two canyons. There was like an intermediate immediate canyon in between. So we saw him on the far canyon. We saw the bull. It was like you're talking about. He was out for about two minutes of daylight in the morning. And 10 seconds was enough to know, like, this is the bull. Yep. We hiked, sprinted for half an hour to get back to the pickup. We drove for almost an hour to get around. We hiked for like five hours to get to where we thought this bull was. And when we got there, we're like, this is the wrong ridge. Mm. this doesn't look right so we start looking at maps we're looking across the canyon like and it was under ten thousand yards i could have ranged it and, yeah and had that information yeah yep yeah stoked to get my hands on those man that is that's gonna be a game changer for sure all right enough Shoot. tech talk let's 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 just go let's just go do the thing let's go do some scouting that sounds good to me let's, let's be good guides okay or at all least right. act like what we think good guides do <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you're in luck. That's what I specialize in. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, buddy. Appreciate your time. Yep. Appreciate it. Always. October, November, December, they're just the best months out of the year, right? Whether it's for work or hunting or fishing, the holidays, spending time with your family, just it's awesome, right? And we've got some nice cold mornings now, and you get to go out and have a a warm drink in the duck blind or out on the hillside where you're glassing for for mule deer or elk or uh, or sitting in a tree stand waiting for a whitetail to come past. Or you're working on the job site and you get to take a break and have some nice warm coffee waiting for you. It's pretty nice. Having a cold drink at the end of the day, that makes everything a little bit better too. My favorite Stanley item right now is the 14-ounce titanium travel mug super lightweight because it's made out of titanium, so I'm willing to take it with me when I'm hunting, throw it in my pack. Fits in every cup holder out there, and it just seems to be the right amount of coffee. Uh, I I like it. It's a really cool item, and it fits a niche that I didn't have uh, filled in like any of my other drinkware categories, I guess. Uh, If you're looking for a Christmas present for somebody or just a gift that you want to help them out with, I recommend this because it's pretty cool and it's something that they don't have already. 
The way most discount codes work, completely honest, is uh, if you use it, then whoever gave you that code gets a kickback. Now, I'm not a salesman and I want nothing to do with that. So I'm going to pass along to you a discount code that Stanley gave me because they're great supporters of this podcast and they're great supporters of this audience, which I love. So if you use the discount code 6RANCH, the number 6, the word ranch, you'll get 25% off anything you order from stanley1913.com. I get nothing back from that. I don't want anything. I just want to pass along some savings to you and save you a little bit of money and get you connected with this great company that makes really great products. And as we move through fall and, and get into winter and the holidays, just hope everybody's doing well and, and having a good time and, and that you get to get out there and connect with nature and, and connect with your friends and family and have a nice warm drink while you're doing it. We're living in interesting times. If you go to the grocery store right now, you might not be able to find beef or pork or chicken or pet food or toilet paper. And buying beef from a ranch has always been tough because most people don't have enough freezer space or they don't know a rancher or don't live near one. The Six Ranch is solving that for you. This year, we only have eight spots left in our grassroots beef club. And it works like this. The first week of every month, we ship you a cooler full of all-natural grass-fed Coriani steaks, roasts, and burger from December until May. And being a member in this club also gets you an invite to come tour the Six Ranch during calving season in May and stay for a hosted dinner. Deliveries are available to Oregon, Washington, California, parts of Idaho, and Nevada. Now, this ranch has been in my family since 1884. It's one of the oldest businesses in the state of Oregon. We raise our cattle ethically and use traditional cowboy practices blended with modern grazing techniques. We also put a huge amount of work into wildlife conservation for species like mule deer, salmon, steelhead, rainbow trout, upland bird species. And this is healthy beef that you can feel good about eating. Learn more about the Six Ranch and get one of the last shares available at sixranch.com. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>